Crude Audacity Podcast. to the crude audacity podcast the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers i am katherine mills and before we begin today wherever you are listening from please be sure to leave us a rate and review and if you are watching on youtube go ahead and hit that little subscribe button for me i love seeing your engagement your comments questions feedback and i know our guests love hearing from you as well because they like to know how they did so Without further ado, as everyone knows across the board, we are seeing a push and a pivot for a leaner environment in both oil, energy, and really across any industry right now. And it's something that management is really struggling with. What's the right way to do it? How do we provide more for less? And how do we do so effectively, efficiently, and really continue to produce the results we previously were? Everyone's sort of navigating it, right? Well, you hear about the riots in the Rockies and the plight in the Permian, but do you ever really hear from small town USA? Here, our very first Mississippi interview. I know you guys have been hearing me talk about Mississippi for a full year now. Mr. Steve Richardson, welcome to the Crude Audacity podcast. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you. (laughs) So is this your first podcast? This is my very first podcast. I have no experience doing this. <laughs> Do you ever listen to podcasts? Um, no, I think I did a long time ago when they first came out. Um, but and that's what 10, 15 years. I don't even remember. Remember. <laughs> so no, no, I have not. That's no, awesome. Didn't. Well, thank you for, I know I kind of bullied you into this and I'm very happy I did. (laughs) No, very happy to do it. I cannot wait. For those that don't know, uh, Steve was actually, he gave me my first internship in the oil field and actually midstream, not upstream. So he is used to me. Thank God. (laughs) And to this day, when I go home to Mississippi, Steve does a very good job of warning the pumpers before I arrive. (laughs) Steve, you have seen it all. You've been in the big companies. You've moved down to small town USA. You are really getting to see sort of the full breadth of how this new let's call it a downturn or pivot, whichever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. um, is really affecting the different sectors of the field. And what most don't realize is that the oil field is absolutely everywhere in every state. So Mm -hmm. before we begin, can you kind of give us your background, how you got started in oil and energy, where you've been and how you ascended into the roles you have today? Well, I'll start to, I graduated from Purdue University back in, way back in 1990. (laughs) <laughs> and after I graduated, I took my first job with Amico. Amico. Um, Amico. Amico. And um, I worked there for 11, well, Amico slash BP for 11 years. I think it was only Amico for two years. I don't really remember that much. But uh, <laughs> with Amico, <laughs> so with Amico and BP, I worked in Houston, Denver, Kansas. Houston, Kansas again, or Houston, then Canada, 
then Houston again, then Louisiana, and then Mississippi. So I worked between Amico and BP for 11 years, and that took me to about 2008. And then I decided, well, uh, moving around, my kids were small, wanted to see them play soccer and hopefully tennis. And so I took a job with TELUS, yep. small company, and I've been there since 2008. I cannot and believe it. you've been with us for that long. Yeah. And yeah, I say yeah. with us, like okay. I'm a part of it. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And when I was working in Amico and BP, uh, operations engineering role, project engineering roles, marketing, NGL marketing, and plant manager roles. And when, when I left there in 2008, I was a plant manager at the Pascagoula gas plant and decided to take a role with TELUS. And here I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we, I don't get to talk to many from the midstream sector all that often. So I'm really mm -hmm. excited to see your perspective on everything. But you're not just midstream. You're also over operations at TELUS. Yeah. Um, 2018. Uh, again, for the 2008 to about 2018, I was doing just strictly midstream operations management. And then 2018 on, um, I got promoted into doing both the oil and the gas assets and also the midstream. So that's, that's kind of, well, yeah. that, that's pretty interesting because usually the, the upstream and the midstream, they don't really communicate. It kind of stops at wellhead. So yes, it does. Yes, I'll, it be, does. <laughs> I'll be curious to, to pick your brain on that a little further. But mm -hmm. having gone from, you know, some of this larger corporate environment, very structured mm -hmm. uh, down to and, and seeing really every everything. I mean, Lord help you. You are in Canada. I'd love to hear your thoughts mm -hmm. on Canada right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, what are your perspectives and the changes in environment and honestly, how everyone should be navigating from the big guys down to the little guys right now? Well, I, I had a leg up when I was graduating my senior year. I remember an interview. I remember the, I think I remember the guy's name. His name was Warren Keese. And he was telling me about uh, you're taking your first few years into a bigger company than what, what the natural path, path is from then was to go to a smaller company. And the reason the the reason that he gave me and I believe and it's it's right and I would recommend it to other people working in the bigger companies, you have a lot more access to resources, training. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually finished my MBA when I was at Amico and BP and um, they send you to a lot more classes. I actually got to go to Singapore. Oh, uh, that's cool. Singapore, China, Hong Kong. Just uh, London, um, a lot of lot of lot of trips and a lot of training uh, classes mm -hmm. that I was able to take with the big majors that I don't think I would have had that opportunity with a smaller company. But what I will say is that kind of uh, prepared me well to worker to working in a smaller environment because in the smaller environment you get more exposed to uh, the whole oil and gas gambit. You won't, you're not just compartmentalized like mm -hmm. in, um, let's say, Amico and BP. And not that that's wrong or anything, but as you get older, you kind of want to take on more more challenges. And with the smaller companies, you're able to do that. Well, you're able to stretch more, honestly. Yes. You become yes. a, a, you're not necessarily a reservoir engineer. You're an engineer right. who can do reservoir. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. Definitely you get to interact with a lot more people than I did when I was with the, the, the majors. Now the reservoir engineers, 
the land people, yeah, um, everything, oil and gas, we we touch. I'm glad you call them the land people too, because I, <laughs> I don't know what else to call them. <laughs> and I've had some awesome landmen on this uh, podcast, yeah. and it's for you're the land people. <laughs> um, so kind of set the scene for us. You know, like I said in sort of the intro, we hear about what's happening in the Rockies because mm -hmm. of really of Colorado and it being demoted to the least favorable place to do business because mm -hmm. of oil and gas. We hear about New Mexico because they're trying to navigate their way into new rules and regulations. And we hear about West Texas because mm -hmm. that's really the heart of the oil field. But mm -hmm. What's happening outside of those areas? What is Louisiana and Mississippi like right now? Well, I can't speak a whole lot to Louisiana, although I, it, I would say it's probably similar, more similar to Mississippi than the, I would say West Texas. Mm -hmm. But we have, a, we have a lot of wells. We have a lot of small producers. Um, <clears throat> we're, we're obviously, we're impacted by the prices just like everyone else. Yeah. Um, uh, we had the ability to come back a little quicker than those folks, um, just because of the nature of the types of oil and gas wells that we have, uh, particularly is, wells. Yeah, what is that? Well, um, our we we have primary production. We also have some tertiary productions, and which is with CO two, mm -hmm. and we're able to uh, slow the CO two down, increase the CO two, and get the oil production to respond to that a little quicker than, you know, just shutting in a well and then starting it back. Because sometimes um, they don't start back. <laughs> uh, sometimes they don't start back. Even with CO2 wells, sometimes it's when you reduce the CO2 a lot, uh, it's a little tougher trying to get it back, but it does eventually come back. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, Are y'all having any sort of regulatory unrest like we're seeing in the other locations right now? I mean, people are trying. I've got to say, like, even it being an election year, we're seeing more heat on oil and energy and the mm -hmm. demand or they're calling it the demand for clean energy, but they're not mm -hmm. really looking at how clean oil and gas is. So right, right. it's it's kind of a hotbed of a topic right now. Well, from where I sit, we we're, we're certainly not you know, immune to that, but mm -hmm. in Mississippi, I have not seen any kind of unrest or toward oil and gas, or it's just been more about responding to the prices. So no political pressure, no, um, um, fortunately, we just don't see any of that. That's kind of awesome. I, I think that might be a what what did the governor of South Dakota do? She invited everyone to come do business in her state as opposed to all the other ones. Maybe oh, we can start that. that in Mississippi. <laughs> <I didn't know laughs> we are oil and gas friendly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most people don't think about oil and gas in Mississippi in the same breath. So mm -mm. isn't that kind of cool though? That's how rural we are. That's yeah. actually a little scary now that I say that out loud. Um <laughs> So talk to me more about the midstream side of what you do, because when everyone thinks midstream, they just think these huge pipelines that are being protested, you know, mm -hmm. going across Indian reservations, all of it. And there's a lot more to mm -hmm. managing a midstream company and a midstream group. So can you dive into that a bit? Well, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll do that. Um, I'll start with our oil and gas facilities. Well, Everyone knows about the oil and gas wells, but the facility, facility engineers, midstream, uh, there's there's a process to get the oil gas out of the ground, to separate it, to get it to the right tanks um, so it can be sold, it can be trucked. Obviously, you know about the pipelines, 
lot of the oil and gas is pipelined. Yep. And in our oil and gas fields, we also have these things called CO2 recycle plants. Mm-hmm. So when the oil and gas and water and CO2 comes out back out of the ground, it has to be separated. The yep. CO2 is recycled back into the ground. So there's compressors and a lot of equipment that's needed to, you know, to do that. That's, that doesn't shut down. It sits there and circulates 24 hours a day, lots of volumes. So those facilities, designing those facilities, um, dealing with all the regulatory requirements, um, keeping them operating, uh, that's something that we do. So y'all consult and design facilities as well? Yeah, we, we don't necessarily consult. We, we do consult with our, our sister company, but we design, um, I mean, this is this isn't the year 2020. So a lot of our design work, we'll do ourselves conceptual designs, mm-hmm. uh, process simulations. Now we're smart enough to realize if there's some things, some civil engineering, some structural engineering, something real specific, we'll go out and get that help. But the experience that we have um, as far as uh, we know it needs to look like this, it needs to be designed this way. We know we need this size tank, that size tank. We got enough experience to be able to do that. So um, we're able to do most of our, what I'll call conceptual design in-house. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about the overlay between midstream and now what is the the production management, really, the, you know, making sure everything's up and running and not only making it to sales point, but, right. you know, coming out of the ground effectively. Yeah. Well, I'll start off by saying this. In midstream, I can see what's happening because it's on the ground. Yeah. When you move upstream, a lot of things are happening underground. I can't see it. So we're not struggling. It's just a learning curve to, well, uh, this could be happening or this could be happening. And there's really no hard, okay, uh, I can see it. You know, I, I can see the pressure. I can see the temperature. I can actually see because a lot of these wells are four and five miles underground. Yeah. So, and things are happening, temperature, you know. Um, so that's the biggest learning we have is just not being able to see what's happening before it comes up out of the well mm-hmm. um, and then moving on further down the pipeline. Um, it, it is kind of interesting being on both sides because a lot of times, oh, it's their fault. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're, they're yeah us now. So <laughs> we got to we had to sit there and ride the fence. So. Yeah, exactly. You can't blame <laughs> no, can't blame anybody else now. When in doubt, blame Mark, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> that kind of part, yes. So how does that actually work then? So in most companies, like we said earlier, the entities are completely split. Now mm-hmm. you're over both of them. So are you mm-hmm. recognizing, is that kind of something you would recommend to other groups saying, you know, we understand that everyone has to consolidate, but this actually is a this is a team building plan. This is a, a resource plan to get people on both sides of the coin. So not only we understand where the oil is coming from and all the science behind that, but we understand the science behind where is it going. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, for us, being a small operator, um, <clears throat> it's about training the next person, next person. Mm-hmm. So it was natural. I've been in doing, I've been doing midstream for a while. Um, I have um, Mark Lynn who works with, we work hand in hand together 24 seven. Sometimes it seems like, and so he's kind of doing more, most more now of the midstream 
assets. They're kind of running really good. Eh, of course, they have trouble from time to time. He's able to deal with that. And that's allowing me to do a little bit more focus on the oil and gas assets, mm-hmm. which in number is a hundredfold bigger than the number of plants and pipelines we have. Mm-hmm. So it, it works for us because we have such a small team, a very good team, a very dynamic team. Um, so it, it works for us. And then as I think we're going to talk about, we have technology to help us out. So yeah. we're, we're able to do those type of things now. So it, it really depends on the makeup of your team, whether you can, where this is you know, something that works for your company or not. Mm-hmm. It has to work for us. Well, that's kind of interesting and really leading to the point. And the reason I wanted to sit down and interview you is many managers are being put in the position now where they have to consolidate. They have to deliver more for, with less and mm-hmm. honestly for less. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a new definition out there for what a lean environment looks like, because as much as I hate it, uh, the phrase, the new normal, we are in a new pivot. We're in a new right. change. And, we have got to figure out a way to define the new face of an oil company, really. Mm-hmm. So can you kind of take me through and speaking to management, like what you have to do, how you're actually evaluating working lean. Um, you said you had a very dynamic team. What are their capabilities? What are you looking for? Just what does the the new term of lean, the new idea of a lean working environment actually look like for a mid-sized to small uh, operator or midstream company? Okay, I'll, I'll start that off. I'll start with my position. Okay. Uh, I do a lot of the engineering. I do a lot of process simulations myself. My main role is to interact with what we call our corporate office. And so I'm always out in the field along with Mark and we're always translating. Um, we're always relaying the problems that operations in the field are seeing mm-hmm. to corporate and then what corporate wants um, and, and what the expectations are from corporate back to the field. So that's my main role. So uh, very seldom do I sit in the office, do mm-hmm. a lot of windshield time traveling. So I'll start there. That's what the new lean <laughs> operating staff is. Um, so it's, it's everybody's hands on deck. It's everybody's no hands on deck. priority structure anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do simulate, do simulations. My boss, he ha- and he's very good at this. He helps me design plants and lay things out. Uh, he'll go back and forth to um, an engineering staff that's in Houston if we're designing a, a plant. So we don't have a dedicated engineer doing that. I'm mm-hmm. doing it or my boss, again, who's CEO level, is doing that. Okay. Um, while we're doing that, then we have Mark, who's my counterpart out there, who's actually going back and forth dealing with problems at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll <start Right>. <laughs> um, as you move, if you move, I was going to say down, but more to the side, then you have our operating staff. Uh, again, very lean, not um, uh, probably have, I'm going to guess, 500, 600 wells. Our staff is probably 30, 40 people. Um, That's really yeah, hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's no way we those guys can handle that number of that number of wells without some technology. Mm-hmm. And we use and our technology is really blue tech. And that allows those guys to monitor a lot of different wells. They obviously go to the wells every day, mm-hmm. but some wells may have a problem over a problem that day. The alarm system will let them know so they can redirect themselves to 
um, reprioritize their schedule so they can deal with the problem wells to keep the wells producing or the plant running for that. Yes. So um, you really haven't, I mean, you're talking about the pumpers really. And yeah. that's kind of interesting because when you introduce more technology and I mean, as you know, Blue Tick is another uh, family company. It's a SCADA company. There's no mm -hmm. secret on LinkedIn that I'm, I'm wrapped up in that one as well. But mm -hmm. um, one of the pushbacks I get up here with my guys is we don't want more automation. We don't want more uh, technology put in the field because mm -hmm. it potentially compromises their job. And mm -hmm. I'm always saying, you know, a digital twin is an assistant, not a replacement. Mm -hmm. So how did you sort of navigate that with your team? You, you know, I've heard that before, but in my years at Amico BP tells it just never worked that way. Usually <laughs> you have a certain number of folks and then they need some help. And mm -hmm. some help is that technology to be able to look at different wells. But by the same token, they're learning a different skill. They have to keep that, keep that that working, keep the end devices talking to the, uh, to the SCADA system. Uh, if you don't, if you don't have good data, then, you know, the SCADA system is meaningless. So those guys are learning that skill. And then mm -hmm. what usually happens is as people, they'll, you know, um, they'll, they'll, they'll retire. We just may not replace that person because we have the technology. These guys have the skill. They are learning this. And so they can handle more wells. What I haven't replaced that guy. It's never, it, I've never seen it where, oh, okay, we got skated technology now. Oh, so we can, we can cut 10 folks. It's, it never works that way. At least not, not in my experience. From the big guys, even down to the little guys. Even, even the big guys, even down, especially down to the little guys. This is well, never. Because of the, I always say it's because of the art of interpretation. You're never yeah. going, you might be able to, you know, put more data on a spreadsheet, but it's a computer can't interpret really what right. uh, the uh, appropriate calls of action right. uh, or call for action rather than someone who's been working for 40 years. So that's it's right. interesting to hear that that's how you're navigating this new pivot is really through better data. That's right. And you, and you hit the nail on the head. Those guys have to be able to interpret that data. Oh yeah. Um, and there's, a, and like you said, there's a lot of data, but by the same token, the most important thing is not to negatively impact the environment. That exactly. comes first. Okay. And so, you know, th those are their marching orders. And they, we all lose sleep sometimes watching things and uh, learning how to tweak the sensors and making sure the sensors we have, we've had, and Blue Tick's been really good with this, helping us go through different um, renditions, I guess I would say, mm -hmm. or uh, of, of end devices to get something that's, that's, not a nuisance alarm because you can you can tell if you got 40 people and you got five or six hundred wells if you get a nuisance alarms and those guys you know pretty quickly they'll start ignoring alarms well you definitely <laughs> don't want to do that <laughs> um so I, like i've said again blue state's been very good at helping us uh sell in on something that's really robust for our guys so how have you gone through the process? I mean, everyone's going through layoffs right now. They're going through some form of consolidation. Mm -hmm. When you are sitting there understanding what you need to deliver to corporate to the corporate office, your your managers, because um, everyone has a boss. For mm -hmm. <laughs> even I have a boss, <laughs> but. Um, you know, how are you sitting there and making the decisions? What are you using to sort of navigate? you know, how you keep those critical skill sets on your team and 
can still continue to train your team up because to your point, that doesn't stop. You still need right. someone to ascend to the next role and you have to give them the resources to do it. Right. Again, with us, um, it, it, it was a natural, even before all the COVID-19 and all these situations were, were coming to, coming about, we were, we always had a pretty lean staff. So we started, we started marching, marching down this path. Oh, maybe five, six years ago. Oh, so, really? Oh, yeah. So this is this is not this just started in you know 2020, mm -hmm. and so for us, and I'll say it, it's been business as usual. Of course, we've had people around us that's been that's been um, that's fallen you know, to the COVID nineteen. We've had contractors, and for us, the biggest impact have been contractors, not so much our own staff, um, <clears throat> and being able to deal through some of that, some of those things, but. Um, um, as I was saying, we, we started going down this path five or six years ago. So um, we're not as impacted today um, other than the prices and turning wells on and turning wells off. Mm -hmm. But as far as you know, laying people off or breaking new people on or, or, or changing how our, our staff is learning, that hasn't changed at all. That's awesome. Yeah. So with the size team that you have and this, this push for better data, how out here we hear all the buzzwords, SPEs all over it, you know, machine learning, AI, uh, automation, just one thing or another. And, you know, what I've sort of found is that it's all a bunch of smoke and mirrors. It, right. You know, it, it sounds really cool, but are you, do you really have a data plan? Do you really have a data management plan? So what are you noticing in small town USA where, you know, you might not be one of those top guys who has to be in the news every other day talking about your innovation. I mean, you're still, you still don't want to fall behind, but, and you're still a lot of history and a lot of data. So how are you guys adopting those catchphrases? Well, for us, um, and believe it or not, being in Mississippi, I think we have a small advantage, even working with Blue Tick. For us, the big buzzword is, can I see it on my cell phone? <laughs> uh, can I manage the data when I'm out in McGee, Mississippi? And the answer for us is yes. And we have um, um, Blue Tick's been, we've been we, we have been working with Blue Tick over the years to get to that point. But for us, being able to manage the data on the road is the most important thing. Um, so are you driving and is, your cell phone, I'm sorry, are you driving and looking at your cell phone? Oh no. I said in, <laughs> I said in McGee, Mississippi, when, when we're at the gas station, filling up for, you know, uh, going into the store, getting something, having, <laughs> the mess, having to check our messages or, 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 and I, and I just, I just jest about that. It's more being on site and some other well has gone down in, you know, Baxterville, Mississippi. But mm -hmm. we can see that while we're sitting there in Raleigh, Mississippi. Yes. No, we don't have to go back to the office, go to our computer and, and see what's going on. That's the most important technology that we have. And to be able to graph that data on our cell phone too. Right so there. you're a visual person. You like the visuals behind the data so you can see where an outlier versus a novelty is actually occurring. Well, you know, I, I personally do, but some people like to see the tabular data. Well, we have that flexibility, either one. But but the most important thing is you can see the data live, real time. What's going mm -hmm. on now? I'm getting alarmed. What is it? I can I can actually see and start to trend stuff and, and start to formulate a plan before I start moving that direction. 
And that's very important to us. Now, I like to think that, you know, not everybody has that technology, that capability. Um, um, so I think that's one of the advantages that we have. That's kind of interesting, though, that you said you have an advantage being in small Mississippi, you know, and I always say small because I'm so used to the Delta, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. that's I, I like Flora, Mississippi. There's probably 20 people that live there, honestly. <laughs> but, you know, we're watching this across our energy markets right now. We are looking at the what I call the age of consolidation. Mm-hmm. We're seeing really a, a, just a turnover in crew yet again. So from your vantage point and, and having that uh, competitive advantage of being sort of under the radar. What is what are you noticing about the oil field right now? From the big guys to the guys out in West Texas to even up in you know the East Coast Appalachia. What mm-hmm. what are you sort of seeing across the board? And from your experience, how are you sort of digesting it all? Well, the thing when I when I hear about it in the news, and honestly, I don't watch a lot of the news. It all keeps coming back to. To me as how much does it cost to produce the oil okay. mm-hmm. and the more the the leaner and uh, m- more efficient way of using technology that you can do um, puts you in a better place to be able to withstand these price these uh these price drops now some of uh you know, back in March, I mean, you know, it got kind of negative or things like that. Uh, that's kind of tough for anybody to withstand. Yeah. But um, when it all kind of settles down, I don't believe, and it's just me talking, I don't believe we're going to see a steady, you know, $60, $70, $80 barrel of oil mm-hmm. anytime soon. Did you see they're predicting 35 by end of year? And most people were saying 70 uh, oh, yeah. two yeah. months ago. Isn't that kind of interesting? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so what I think is um, uh, you, you have to be able to um, and to operate in the $30 barrel range, mm-hmm. $20 barrel range. Uh, hopefully this is not coming to pass, but that's just the, the pattern that I'm seeing. And the smaller you are, or the leaner your staff, the more, you know, you can, if you can take advantage of technology, you have a better chance of withstanding that. So maybe lean isn't the right word. Maybe it's more efficiencies. Maybe it's, it's down to pushing back to training opportunities and filling mm-hmm. in that gap so that you can allow people, you know, like you said, you're not just a production engineer. You're also a pumper. You're also uh, the reservoir guy. Like yeah. you, have a more well-rounded resume as opposed to you are just one sort of specialty. Well, that's true. Yeah. And and that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The the more tasks you can do, the more things that you can do, um, the better chance you have of of surviving it. I would say so. So Mm -hmm. what is your prediction um, taking markets out of it, taking price out of it, and just knowing that we are pivoting right now? Mm -hmm. What is your prediction? What's the new face of oil and gas going to look like from upstream to midstream? How are we coming out of this? And honestly, how do we make a point to be more digestible to external sources? Yeah, that's a that's a tough question. If I if I had the answer to that, I probably wouldn't be sitting right here. You'd be on the podcast if you had that. <laughs> I'm going to say it goes back to what we've just been talking about. I think 
oil, oil and gas, the oil and gas industry. I think as we move forward, I don't know if there's going to be market lines between upstream, downstream. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just see one entity, uh, uh, multiple, you know, a, a few managers, um, a few, oh, more than a few operators with, with, you know, back in back 20 years ago, a lease operator was just lease operator. And then you had an IME tech. Well, now that's all one person usually. Yeah. So again, it goes back to um, uh, the, the not so definitive lines in management, not so definitive lines in operations mm-hmm. and um, technology. More skill sets and a tech to make it more efficient and actually do right. it. That's probably a very accurate prediction. Um, yeah. How do you see management teams changing? I'm kind of curious about that because we tend to, uh, or at least out here, mm-hmm. um, when a company goes under one way or the other or starts falling behind, they don't really switch the management teams. You know, you got the golden parachute, you hold mm-hmm. on. There's really, <laughs> if you've got the the friendship and the handshake to the money, you stay mm-hmm. in place. So mm-hmm. I don't necessarily see that lasting. I see a shakeup coming with what the oil field uh, management structure looks like. And I'm kind of curious mm-hmm. from your perspective, how do you see that going? Well, I've always had the opinion that you that you just shared is, you know, some of these companies will, you know, they fall into bankruptcy then. But you don't know it unless someone told you you don't really know that's happened. Um, They're still paying their bills. Uh, They still go about their business as though nothing ever happened. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's that's a hard one for me to answer, because from from my perspective and what I've seen out here so far, uh, at least with the operating companies, I don't see a change. Now, where I do see the change where is with the contractors. Um, okay, how so? them, yeah, a lot of them are going away, which makes our relationship with the few contractors we have all that more important. Okay. And, yeah, and we've always managed those pretty good and had good relationships with our contractors. And, and that's kind of helped us out here. How are... Where are people going when, or at least down there, where are they where are they headed if they decide that the volatility of oil and gas is just a little too much for them? What where is that transferable skill set leading them? You know, that's a good question. I'm going to say I I really do not know. Um, is that kind of scary for our industry? You don't really know where you fit outside of industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you sat there and took a really hard look at it, I, I guess it, it it would be kind of scary. I try not to dwell on the things that I can't control. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, yeah, uh, no, of course, no, we're not immune to it. Everyone's always talking about it. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, again, a lot of the folks that I'm interacting with are out in the field and they're close to the oil wells and the facilities. So they don't stress about it near as much as, you know, let's say folks that are in the office. <laughs> I did hear that. The the safest place in the oil field is right next to the wellhead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those guys, and I'll be honest with you, they, they spend more time not focusing on the things that they can't control and making sure that they're producing the wells and, you know, make sure <laughs> we're not negatively impacting the environment. So, yeah, exactly. So your idea, the evolution of the oil field is really just a, 
a more jack, not necessarily a jack of all trades. I feel like that's the wrong phrase because that tends to have a negative connotation. You don't know how to do everything, mm -hmm. but you know how to sound like you do everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so your your interpretation of the future of oil field and oil field services is really adding more tools to your tool belt to make you more a more dynamic hire, honestly. Well, that is correct. But also you have to know what you do not know. You got to know when to go. You got to be willing to ask. You got to be willing to ask what absolutely, you Absolutely. You absolutely do. Um, you know, there's special, there's, there's, there's things like designing, uh, I know a foundation. Well, we can't do that, nor do we want to do that. Well, we can go hire folks to do that kind of detailed design. Um, the biggest thing is being able to know when to go out for help, but still having the skill set to not have to go out for help for every little thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Yeah. For every little thing. That gets yeah. expensive fast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what advice do you have to management? Um, are, are those now being put in a position? Cause you know, when we have these crew changes, we tend to, have to promote people into roles and responsibilities they aren't necessarily ready for. I mean, mm -hmm. having a decade worth of experience in the oil field doesn't really mean a lot if you've never translated between unconventionals, conventionals, upstream, midstream, you right. know, you, you have to go back and be willing to be the junior on the team again. Mm -hmm. So these, for these guys that are being pushed into more managerial roles, what is your advice to them, especially right now in this leaner environment and the ones that you're describing? Well, <laughs> if they don't have the experience. Um, I'm going to go back to what we just said. You have to know where to go to get the help that you need. Mm -hmm. um, that's the most important thing. Um, and, and there's, and there's folks out there. There's folks out there. Um, <clears throat> There are podcasts out there. Yeah, there's podcasts out there. Um, but that's a tough one. But yeah. if you, you 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 absolutely have to know where to go get the information. But you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, we see yes. it happen every yes. I feel like every seven to eight years, there's the death of some very popular asset, and all of a sudden yeah. everyone has to shift again because you can't chase it no more. That's so right. it's not only a matter of being willing to ask the questions that you don't know or that being willing to show that you don't know it. It's mm -hmm. also senior teams being willing to accept that there, there's a new workforce emerging right now and there are new rules associated with it. Yeah, yeah, they'll have to slow down. <laughs> um, and then if you don't have the experience, you, you have to allow them to be able to get the experience. Now, I'm not saying you have to allow them to make mistakes to get the experience, but you're going to have to slow down a bit to learn these things. Um, and, and then even when you do that, that does not mean that, okay, uh, in a year's time, we're just going to go hundred miles an hour. I'm not saying yeah. that at all, but, uh, I don't uh, think that's possible anymore. Yeah. 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 I don't think so either. Yeah. <laughs> what are you, when you're looking to bring on new people to your team, what, what are you really looking for? What are the, cause I mean, everybody looks good on paper these days. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. They do one sheet, seven bullet mm -hmm. points everyone looks good. So what are you really looking for as a manager? Well, I'm looking for how well they fit in with the team. Okay? Um, are they comfortable with the team? I mean, or do they, are they, you can clearly see when folks are just, or when, when, you know, potential recruits are nervous. 
Um, and, and you and, and you know, being nervous is all part of it. But if they're just not comfortable in an environment that we're used to working in, which is people, 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 and mm-hmm. and, and you're always going and talking to different people, trying to get information. Um, you, if they're not good at that, you can you can see that you can see that or you can feel that. So hmm. that's the biggest thing we're looking for. And then typically um, I'll talk with them. I'll get feedback from the operators or the facility guys, the foremen, and we'll all kind of talk about it together and then we'll make a decision that way. But it's not GPA. I mean, if you graduated, um, if, cool. if, if you graduated, we know you can work hard. We yeah. know you can take but what we're looking for is, can you work with us as a team? Because uh, like we said, it, it's the team that makes things go. I mean, you can have the best engineer in the world, but um, if he, um, for lack of a better word, pisses off the operators, well, they can make you look bad in a hurry. <laughs> so, I, I see. Yeah, they, they can haze you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they can make you a really good idea, and all of a sudden it's not a good idea anymore. So. Yeah, exactly. That's really unfortunate when you go that far. <laughs> I've seen it. <laughs> oh, I know. It's there's some pretty good stories. Well, Steve, if you weren't in the oil field, where would you be? If I wasn't in the oil field, I would probably be working with Dow Chemical and the petrochemical industry or just the chemical industry. Why is that? Um, when I was interning. When I was at Purdue, I worked with Dow in Midland, Michigan, and I really liked chemistry. I, I like like bulk chemicals. I, I just really liked that. That's that's what I was going to do. That's why I went to school. And <laughs> then I was like, oh, I'll take this interview with Amico. And then they introduced me to gas plants and opened up a whole world that I knew nothing about. And yeah. then I was hooked. So so then, no, when I was when I was in, at Purdue, did my engineering classes. Didn't know anything about a gas plant or a CO two recycle plant or. You don't learn about yeah. any of that yeah. stuff. I mean, heck, mm-hmm. even a petroleum engineer, they could actually probably do pretty well in the midstream side, and most a lot of them don't actually examine it. So exactly, my counterpart is Mark Lynn. He's an electrical engineer, and we absolutely would not be as efficient as we are without him. But I remember thinking uh, when I would. I was in when I graduated and I was six months in and I remember there was an electrical engineer. I kept thinking, why does electrical engineer want to work in a gas plant? Um, <laughs> fast forward 30 years. I know exactly why. <laughs> <laughs> so, Well, heck, maybe you should start teaching some classes and teach people like, honestly, what midstream is all about. Cause yeah. like you said, yeah. getting that small company opportunity, yes. that makes all the difference. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, in small company, you can see a whole lot more. You get exposed to a whole lot more a lot quicker than mm-hmm. you would with a big major. Um, listen, Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully the big majors don't buy everybody all up then. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, you know, you've you've had quite an experience across oil and energy. You're in quite an interesting role now. And I actually think your role is very much a you know, a glimpse into the future of mm-hmm. how the lines no longer exist. There's right. there oil field operations. And then honestly, there's probably downstream because it's a whole right. different piece. Right. But um, that being the case, it, if someone was looking to fight their way to stay in this industry or God forbid, brave enough to 
join it at this point in time, um, mm. what would you really want them? What would you really want to hit home with them on? Tell them to buy Tums and hold on or what? <laughs> um, if you're in the industry, I would say I wouldn't, I wouldn't look to jump ship you know, because, and, and it might just be the optimist in me. I think better. I've seen these cycles, not quite as bad as this, but I've seen these cycles in my 30 years. So yeah, yeah, we're in a trough and maybe eventually we'll start digging our way out. So I wouldn't jump ship. I wouldn't be, I don't think I would, you know, honestly, if I was in school right now and I was thinking about going to oil and gas, I don't think knowing what I know right now that I would, you know, change where I was thinking about going. If I was thinking about going to oil and gas, I think I would still do it. Um, uh, and, and and more so, Catherine, just because the standpoint, well, I think it's tough for anyone right now. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't think it's, you know, it's singling out the oil and gas industry. No. Honestly, I think that it has a really good chance of rebounding probably faster than some of the other industries. But that, again, that could just be the optimist in me and the fact that I don't watch a lot of TV and a lot of news. So, so that, I guess that would be my advice. I wouldn't shy away from it. Yeah, your stick is your advice is to stick with it because there is an upside. You just have yeah. to wait for it. Yeah. Honestly, I think the skill sets you get in oil and gas and energy, um, because we're such a foundational industry, as long as you understand how to spin it so that you mm -hmm. can pivot outside of industry, there's no mm -hmm. reason not to keep one foot in the mix. That's right. I have really enjoyed listening to your take on the new lean. You again, like I keep going back to what a unique role you have and mm -hmm. I'm very envious of it. I I'm really excited mm -hmm. that I can like bother you whenever I want because <laughs> <No> <laughs> it's, it's such a unique one that mm -hmm. I think you always, when I first started with you, the first thing you said was you can work in the oil field, but if you don't know where your product's going, what's the point? And yeah. I, I think this sort of encompasses that uh, that chat you had with me. But <laughs> before I let you go, what is a book, podcast, or other resource that you have found brought you value that you would tell someone else about? Well, it's, I don't think it's real specific to oil and gas industry, but- That's a good thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> but someone has shared this with me a long time ago. And I think it was on podcasts back when I first watched it like 10 or so years ago and more than that, maybe 20 years ago, but I think it's on YouTube now, but it's called like money as debt, money um, as debt, money as debt. Okay. Um, and for me, I, I, I like the business that the, the, the business part of the oil and gas. I went back and got my MBA when I was with the, with the BP and Amico. And um, so this is a good description of how money came to be and how people think of money and where money started. And I just recommend it to anyone. Um, what do you mean yeah. how money came to be and where money started? Like the history yeah. of money? The very history of money from the very, you know, from gold coins all the way to, okay, it's, it's, it's legal tender now. And That's it was just really very cool. interesting. And it's a good, it's a good lens into business. So I would recommend that to anybody. The business of oil is to make money, correct? Right. That is correct. So then that is a perfect recommendation. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. I have been so looking forward to this interview. I think your perspective on how we are pivoting as an industry is right on point. And I would 
highly encourage anyone to connect with you through LinkedIn or, you know, get a hold of you in some way because you definitely have some of those insights, just your experience and your, you know, your time around the oil patch, you know exactly sort of where to pay attention, even though there might be something shiny and flashy in the distance. And I've always really appreciated that about you. So thank you so much for taking the time and thank you for being my first Mississippi interview. <laughs> thank you, Catherine. This was fun. I enjoyed it.